0: Well, good morning, church. Um, as many of you know, as Todd has said, it's been said already, uh, Parkview has a really long standing relationship with many workers in Ukraine. Um, and there's many of you I know in this room have been there before and served on some of those trips over the years. And so Todd mentioned there one potential way that we can continue to or that we can, you know, serve, support you know, the website that, that he set up. Um, I would just say stay tuned in the coming days, weeks, as the story sort of continues and unfolds if you're considering different ways that you'd like to participate. And I'm sure there'll be multiple avenues and opportunities specifically to um, care for and come alongside of our global workers who are currently serving there. Um, So stay tuned on that. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue in our uh, series in the book of Acts. And so I would encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to take it out um, and open it up to Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking specifically at um, really some, some fantastic verses, verses 42 to 47. These, hopefully for many of us, will um, be very familiar. Also, students are dismissed. I think I forgot to say that. Did I say that or not? If I haven't, there, I'm saying it now. And if I did, I said it twice. Um, but these verses are likely very familiar for many of you. And I feel like just even in the first couple of chapters, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about preaching through this book is I feel like we're going to continue to stumble on sort of like um, really significant passages that are just incredibly meaningful. The whole Bible is the inerrant word of God that is spoken for him and is useful for us, by him useful for us. Uh, But there are some passages that just jump out and... um, you know, you just feel like you could preach and preach and preach and study and study and study on these verses, and so um, really rich, meaningful verses. And I'm excited to be able to look at them together with you this morning. the The message, uh, the title of our message this morning is simply this: "Life Together." Life Together. I'm stealing from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his classic work, Life Together. Um, it's one of my favorites, and I'll quote him a few times during this. And if you haven't had a chance to read that book, it's about a little over 100 pages. I would encourage you to Own it and read it. It is incredibly rich and really been beneficial for me over the years. So Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, you'll be helped if you have God's word open with you in front of you this morning. While you're making your way there, I'll just ask you this question. Have you ever, maybe just in recent years, felt alone? Have you ever struggled with loneliness? Now, living in Iowa City... It's a city where there's people come and go constantly. And there's been just, I think, even, I mean, you can be married, you can have kids, you can have roommates, and you can have friends, but you can still feel alone. Um, And if you have, in the, you know, recent years, struggled with a feeling of loneliness, I assure you, you are not alone in that. That likely, odds are, many people in this room have also struggled with that. In fact, Um, In recent years, uh, it's been said that there is sort of a loneliness epidemic in our nation. And COVID has done nothing, as it's kind of driven us towards isolation, has done nothing but cause that epidemic to uh, increase. The average person, the reality is, does not feel like their social needs are met. Certainly, loneliness is, to some level, a perception Um, What does it look like to have friends and to have community? And then when you look at your own life and evaluate it, you certainly can think, well, my life doesn't look like that. And the result is it can leave you feeling lonely. The reality is it's only getting worse and worse in our country. In fact, uh, each generation of Americans is measurably lonelier than the generations that have come before and this is true to the point where even in our country today, the generation that feels the loneliest is actually the youngest among us. They're the ones who struggle with it the most. I believe that social media technology, while they offer the promise of allowing us to be connected, um, what we have discovered over the years is that they have failed to deliver on that promise. Shirley Turkle and her classic work, Alone Together, describes how we as people can be as connected as we have ever been. And yet, we are as lonely as we have ever been. This is a a terrifying reality that many of us know uh, firsthand. Odds are there's many of us here today, even right now, who can relate in some measure to that. Um, These are the results of really living in a highly individualized culture that are prone to think that we can sort of just make a way for ourselves. And we're often tempted to attempt that by ourselves. And the results are it leaves us in ruin and despair, thinking, dreaming, longing for another way. As we look at Acts 2, verses 42 to 47 this morning, we're gonna discover some really good news. It's really good news for all of us this morning. We'll discover that life doesn't have to look like that. You don't have to be lonely. There's another way to live. In fact, the reason why loneliness and isolation are so painful is because we're not designed for it. We're designed to live our life Together, And while some of us have longed for us, maybe been hurt or burned in the past when we have attempted to do just this, God is coming to us this morning through his word and reminding us that we are called, designed, actually, to live our lives together. And the good news this morning is that this supernatural reality, we'll discover, is made possible by God pouring out his spirit. And so, let's look together at Acts 2, 42 to 47. I'll read it, and then I will pray for us, and we'll just, we'll dive right in. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have right now to sit together as a people, as your people, and consider your word. I pray, Lord, we recognize that your spirit is in this place and would he guide us in all truth, Lord. And um, Lord, I pray that we would leave here this morning recognizing that we are, if we are in Christ, we're simply not alone, and I pray this morning we would recognize the, uh, the benefit of being a community, a people of God, and we would like these people live our lives with glad and generous hearts as a result. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name, amen. Well, it's not uncommon for our family, maybe yours as well, to occasionally look back at baby pictures, okay? And uh, I tend to avoid it because it just makes me sad, um, and happy kind of sad, but it's hard to do sometimes. Uh, but oftentimes, maybe you find yourself doing that, looking back at baby pictures. And as you look back at baby pictures, you'll see kind of different pictures, stages of growth from one phase to the next. And, and we'll return to these pictures time and time again to remember um, what that person was like when they were one, two, three. Um, to consider and to remember, reflect on their growth. While certainly there is a difference as we look at these pictures over time, there's a difference from one stage to the next of a person. Um, as we look at the pictures, we will notice that there are also distinguishing characteristics, distinguishing features that from one picture to the next remain the same. This morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be considering together first the description of our life together. What should our life together look like? The, the first thing we'll notice is provided with this, in these verses, a picture or a, a portrait that much like a baby picture, we should, it is good and right for us as the people of God to return to time and time and time again and to remember not just what were we like, but what we ought to be like. Now, Luke in his writing of Acts provides us several summaries, several portraits, several pictures. This is the most extensive sort of along the way of summaries of sort of what their life together looked like. This is the first and the most extensive one. We see it again in chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. We see it again in chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Similar themes, summary, a picture, a portrait of what God's people look like in their infancy. What we'll discover first is, I wanna guide us on, is establishing and understanding a few of the defining features or characteristics that remain the same from one age to the next as God's church is built and strengthened and as it grows throughout the ages. And what I'm gonna present to you, what I, see, I think we see in the text here, is sort of four, essentially, we can look at them as birthmarks okay, birthmarks of the early church of God's people that are should be present in every phase of their development and growth, okay? So the first one that we'll see together is that God's people, as they live their life together, that they are a learning community. They're a learning community of people. It says in the text down in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And reflecting on these words, uh, Bible scholar John Stott attributes the Holy Spirit essentially as he comes and fills his people, one of the first things he does is he begins a school. We see previously, after the sermon is preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2, that three, the, the effect is that 3,000 students were enrolled in this school, if you will. And that these 3,000 students were led by the teaching and the leadership of the apostles having just witnessed supernatural power of God's, speak, uh, of God's spirit, referring to the speaking of the tongues and the conversion of 3,000 people, it should not be lost on us that they give themselves to learning, one of the first things we know about these people is they give themselves to learning, to sitting at the apostles' feet and learning. They are a learning people. They're not so caught up in the supernatural that they are uninterested in their studies. The early church understood, and this is a, a lesson that we would do well to understand as well, they, they understood that the intellectual life, and the spiritual life were not mutually exclusive. They just saw an incredible demonstration, an incredible miracle when God poured out his spirit on his people. And the temptation would be to get so caught up in that experience that you sort of de-emphasize the intellectual life that God has called us to Lean into, not away from. The Holy Spirit, see, because the the reality is we're not choosing between a scholarly life, nor is God asking us to choose between a scholarly life and a spirit filled life. We don't have to make a choice, is the point. The Holy Spirit filled the church, um, filled the New Testament church in the sense, that, it, that they study now and they submit to biblical instruction. They find themselves feasting on the word of God. The Holy Spirit, after all, is the spirit of truth. So it should, not, it should not surprise us that they are interested in discovering and discerning this truth as it is. The spirit of God leads the people of God to give themselves to the learning of the word of God. Now, if we just stop there for a second and apply this to us, you know, I think just our settings is a good illustration. We meet as a church in a school, Monday through Friday, where there are classrooms and there are teachers and there are books and there are students learning 40 hours a week, Monday through Friday. Well, we gather as a people on Sunday, guess what? We also, we're going to church, yes, but we're also going to school. We are also committed to learning the truth of God's word. God's people are a learning community. We ought to be one as well. There are also we discover in these verses a loving community. The word here that says that they are devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They also devoted themselves to fellowship. The word here is used is koinonia. It comes from the word koinos. Uh, which is the sort of the root word for fellowship, and it speaks to a a common life of the church in a couple of different ways, that these people shared something in common. Specifically, first and foremost, it expresses what they share in together, namely communion with the triune God of the Bible. It's our common share in this God that allows us to have fellowship with one another. So we share in communion with God but it also expresses what we share out together. What we receive, but also what we give. Again, this word koinonia is a word that, that Paul would regularly use to describe the community of God's people that he was organizing. It also finds it's a relationship, to close relationship to, to the word um, koinonikos, which is the word for generous. Both of these words are connected. And clearly we see that Luke has this generous spirit in mind as he describes the community that expresses their love to one another through things like generosity. You see this in the text. It says that together they had all things in common. They were selling the possessions and the belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. These were a people that understood that their love for God was appropriately expressed in their love for their brother and sister. They were a loving community, such that they would see a brother or a sister had need. They would consider their own affluence or abundance, and their response would be to take what I have and eliminate your need. They had all things in common. They were a generous people. When I think of their generosity, I think of 1 John three seventeen, where John says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is an expression. Their love in their community for one another is an overflow. It's an expression of their, ultimately, their love and affection for God himself. And and likewise for us. If we have a, a hard time letting go of the, the blessings that God has poured into our life, the affluence or the abundance that, that we have, then John would ask us, how does God's love abide in you? How? This is the natural result of being filled with the Spirit and giving yourself to love for God, to love for your neighbor. So they were learning community, they were loving community. There also, we discover, a worshiping community Community. It says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, One thing that's important here as you read that phrase, the the breaking of bread and the prayers, is the, the article that precedes those words. The breaking of bread and the prayers. This suggests really a reference to the Lord's Supper on one hand and prayer services or prayer meetings on the other hand. The idea here is that this is something that they are done in community with each other. And as you read throughout the passage, you'll notice that they are worshiping community that met both in the temple and in each other's homes. Now, it's surprising to think of these people, for me, going back at this, thinking about them going into the temple to worship. But it appears that that's what they had initially done do not believe that they were going in there to participate in sacrifices, for they would have begun to understand that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself was sufficient and for their salvation and the fulfillment of the temple sacrifices. But they do seem to be going to the temple to pray. We know this because in the following verse, in chapter uh, three, verse one, we find Peter and John going into the temple on the ninth hour, why? To pray. They're still attending the temple. So, The picture we have of this worship community, they find themselves sort of navigating between formal settings of worship like the temple, and informal settings of worship, like their homes. They're in their homes, breaking bread together in their homes. Now, there's 3,000 people, and so that means there's not one home that they're all worshiping at this time, but many are opening up their homes. In fact, this is one of the primary ways that those who did have affluence in the day and did have money were able to serve and bless the church because they had homes that were large enough to meet in. And so while oftentimes we think of the people on the margins of society and the church as being just a people that was, that was just poor, I think oftentimes there's a narrative out there of that. That's not the case because the truth is there's people from all different economic positions in the culture meeting together. There needed to be brothers and sisters who had homes to accommodate these meetings. They were a worship community that worshiped formal settings and informal settings. They went to church on Sunday, maybe. Yes, and they went to each other's homes, maybe Monday through Saturday, meeting in each other's homes. So they were a learning community, they were a loving community, they were a worshiping community, and then finally we see as we read this passage that they were also an outward-facing community. They were an outward-facing people. What we've talked about so far really describes sort of the interior life of the church but notice what it says at the end of verse 47. It says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These early Christians, the early church, they were not so concerned with learning and loving and worshiping that they forgot to share the gospel with the watching world. I said before that the Holy Spirit Is really a missionary spirit. And if that's true, then the spirit-filled people of God are also a missionary people. They gave themselves to the praise and the proclamation, and this was the, the natural overflow of hearts that had been filled with the spirit. The picture that we have of the early church, and we see it. I mean, one of the first things that happened after the the Spirit is poured out on God's people is the proclamation of the gospel. And as we read throughout the book of Acts, we will see 19 different sermons or speeches. Like I said last week, 25% of the book dedicated to this proclaiming of the gospel. They spoke it, they shared it, they had received newness of life, and they didn't keep it to themselves. This people that were outward-facing, there was a commitment to proclaim God's excellencies and his gospel. There was also a commitment to welcome. If people are being added to their number daily, these people are expecting to receive new people into their family. And so there's a commitment to welcome them. And when they're welcomed into the, the family of God, they are loved and treated just like that, brothers and sisters. Now, these four sort of birthmarks that we discover as we look back at the church in its infancy are what is often referred to as common means of grace, common, ordinary means of grace. You could refer to these four aspects as just that, common means of grace. Sort of the picture here is I want you to consider like a, a water faucet, your kitchen sink, Let's take that for example. If you wanted to get water out of the kitchen sink, with my kitchen sink, all I would do is I would walk over and I would turn the faucet and water would flow. Now, when I turn the faucet and water begins to flow, I do not stick out my chest and hold my head high and say, look what I did, right? That's not my response because the reality is there was a plumber who had to situate and connect pipes to my house. There was connected to the, the supply of, city, of water coming from the city. There was engineers who had to design the city to get water from the source into each other's, into our homes. There was lots of work that went into advance. All I did is turn the faucet. It's, all, it's the only action that I performed that allowed the, the water to flow freely. Means of grace are just like that. These four common, ordinary means of grace are just like that. They are common, ordinary things that allow the life-giving power of the Spirit to flow. But there are actions that we can take to release the water, God has given us actions that we can take to, to release the regular flow of His life, giving power and grace that are necessary for us to live the Christian life that He has called us to. And so what we need to do as a church is not to scheme together and to consider or to dream up or to think about new methods of church growth. Certainly, there are things that we can learn from the past, but as we consider what does it look like to be a growing, thriving, healthy church that has a gospel witness in our community that lives according to the scriptures, what we really need to do is to look at these common, ordinary means of grace and say, that's what we do right there. Give ourselves wholly to that and leave the results in God's hands. That's what he's calling us to. So this is a description, a picture of what our life together ought to look like. Parkview East, we ought to be a learning community. We ought to be a loving community, a worshiping community, and an outward-facing community. And certainly, one of the reasons why I love this church is because I believe that's precisely what we are, that we have embraced that. I see evidence of that all over this church. Now, secondly, let's consider together, that's a description of what our life together looks like. Let's consider together the effects of living our life together. What happens when we do this? God's people are called to live their life together. And this commitment, this identity transcends all natural boundaries, be them ethnic, generational, economic, political. This is the kind of community that glorifies God, edifies his people, but it's also the type of community that attracts others. It is a compelling community. Community. It's a compelling community. If you look at verse 43, we see that as they lived their life together, awe came upon every soul, that they had favor with all people, and that the Lord added to their number daily. What was the result of them embracing these common, ordinary means of grace? All came on every soul. They had favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number daily. The striking thing about the early church here is just how simple their pattern of life was, and yet how compelling it was. How can we explain that? To use the language of Jonathan Edwards, these early Christians were laying themselves in the way of allurement. They were laying themselves in the way of allurement. That is, they were joyfully placing themselves in the path of Christ's promised power. They were turning on the faucet so that the spirit could flow freely through them. No wonder why the church flourished. As God's people lived according to these ordinary means of grace, one of the results was that others would see it and they would want in. The world is accustomed, the tragic truth is, the world is accustomed to living according to self-reliance and isolation, which ultimately leaves people feeling exhausted and alone, and then leads to ruin and misery in this life and in the next. Parkview East, what we offer is an alternative to that. And the truth is, some may not know that they need it. And the only way that they know that they need it is if they see it in action. For some, that's what it will take. What they need is a visible display of the power of God. And what I think Acts 2, is through 40, uh, 242-47 is calling us to this morning is to embrace that call to be that visible demonstration of the gospel to the watching world. Now, in the text, it says in verse 43 um, that they, they came upon, the awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. As we study the book of Acts, this topic of signs and wonders and miracles is gonna be a topic that we're gonna approach and come around to time and time again because it's all throughout the book. And it'll cause us to ask the question, what role do signs and wonders play in all of this. Some of, the, some of you may be asking that question right now. What role do they play today? It's a great question to ask. And I would, I would like for us as we study the book of Acts to do so um, with the opportunity, with our minds positioned with the opportunity as we learn. Some of us might be challenged in how we think about some of these things a little bit. And that's good. It's good for us to give our minds to it and to think about it. What I want to Present to you or just propose to you this morning for the sake of to this morning's text is one of the primary purposes of signs and wonders, one of the primary reasons why miracles exist in the Bible is to authenticate God's message and his messengers. Why are signs and wonders being performed here? One of the reasons, at least one, is to authenticate God's message and his messengers. This is certainly true of Jesus, for sure. His miracles were not simply done as magic tricks designed to impress or to coerce, but rather they were designed to reveal his true identity. Likewise, when we see signs and wonders in the early church, they served as an, a similar important purpose, they verify the authenticity of God's revelation and signaled the coming of a new age among God's people. One thing that we'll notice as we read throughout the book is that when the gospel goes into a region, almost always, when it breaks into a new territory, almost always is it accompanied with these signs and wonders. Think of Pentecost. The beginning, the sign of tongues and the gospel proclaimed as it was initially proclaimed in Jerusalem. Then, as it breaks into Samaria in chapter 8, verse 6, it says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they had heard him and saw the signs that he did. Paul takes the gospel, we're told, to Lydda and to Joppa. And in both cities, we're told that miracles confirmed the proclamation of the gospel. Paul's first missionary journey, the the pattern continues. Miracles are reported at Cyprus, Iconium, Lystra, and so on. And as the story continues, Paul comes back, and the story will come back to these cities after a local church has been established. And what we'll notice is that after this church has been established, we will notice that there are not reports of miracles In these areas. Instead, the focus of Luke's writing is centered on the preaching of the gospel and the building up of the church. Now, certainly, I'm not suggesting that signs could not have happened, that miracles could not have happened. However, I I, I am suggesting that they're not accounted for in Scripture. So what that should tell us is that this is a it's a significant observation. Because what it reveals is that these miracles, they were sort of temporary signs given to the people to confirm the message, the truth of the gospel. And they were only needed in the book of Acts on a sort of a temporary basis. Why? Because in God's providence and His design, He had established a more permanent confirmation. Namely, the local church. When the gospel first enters a region, this is Mark Dever. When the gospel first enters a region, the spirit enables miraculous signs. Once the gospel takes root, the spirit enables a miraculous community. See, here's the deal. Many of us long for signs and wonders and miracles. And the last thing I would want to do is stand up here and limit God and say he couldn't do that. But in our desire to see him do the miraculous, what we fail to understand is he is doing the miraculous. Do you know what miracle you and I are a part of? Not just witnessing, but a part of? This. This is miraculous. People who have no business calling each other brother and sister People who have no business leading lives of generosity, caring for the needs of each other, people who come from ethnically diverse backgrounds, who are socially totally apart from each other, politically vote differently. The community of God, diverse as it is, is the miracle you and I long. It is. Now, I'm not suggesting God can't do miracles and signs, but I am saying let's not long for something that he's already doing among us. Let's first recognize that. We're part of a miracle. And you know what? We have a sign, a wonder, a miracle to display. And I can think of no time, at least in my life, When the world around us longs for what you and I are a part of and needs. This is significant. Third point, the possibility of a life together. So if you're thinking to yourself, I want in on that. (laughs) The question that we all should be asking is how? How is it possible? How is it possible for me Is this life that is, I mean, sometimes to be honest, I read this description in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, and I still find myself longing for it. I think that's good. This is what we want. This word this morning should not just say, hey, you're doing everything right. It should challenge us. We should stop and we should ask ourselves, are we? And we should do that regularly. How is this possible? Well, it is possible. What are the means by which it's possible? The reality is God was building a new new community, not just dealing with individuals in isolation. See, when we go back to Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon, there is a significant call for repentance. What should we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized is the response. You need to get right with God. The message was very much... About reconciliation that was needed between the sinner and God himself. Get right with God. It was very much a message of personal salvation. But it should strike us in a powerful way that immediately after this invitation to repent and to be baptized and to get right with God individually, that we're given this beautiful description of what our life looks like as we live together in community. It's almost like it goes directly from our vertical. It's not almost like it does. It does. It goes directly from our vertical relationship, us and God, to the horizontal relationship. How He has assembled us as repentant, baptized believers of Jesus together and says, that's my family. Those are my people. And this is what your life ought to look like together. It's exactly what he gives us. This isn't just awesome, it's just the grace of God. We don't have to try to guess, how do we do this? What should it look like? I mean, if you were to take a faithful biblical church in the United States and consider a faithful biblical church, let's say in Ukraine, do you know what you should see? These same marks. These same marks. At the center, how is it possible? At the center of Acts chapter 2, and really throughout the entire message of Acts, what we are discovering ultimately are the effects of the resurrection. So much focus on the cross in the evangelical theology, oftentimes we forget about the, necess- the necessity of the resurrection and the central significance of the resurrection. In verse 24, in Peter's sermon, he certainly didn't. He talked about it several times. God raised him up, verse 24. In verse 31, he explains how David in Psalm 16 foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. In verse 32, he says this Jesus that God raised up. This is what Peter is doing in his sermon, explaining the presence and of activity of the Spirit by pointing to the resurrection. The fact that the resurrection was, was central the 19 sermons that were preached throughout the book of Acts. They could be labeled essentially as resurrection reports. That's what they are, resurrection reports. The whole book of Acts is about Jesus' messengers who had been convinced by the reality of the resurrection, who are now spreading the message of the resurrection to the world. Resurrection is the central focus, the book, because the resurrection is is one of the central focuses of us as a people. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus was just another fool who was murdered. The resurrection provides for you and me the promise that there is a new way to be human. There's a new way to live. It changes everything. There are new possibilities. There's no longer a need for us to just make a way for ourselves because Jesus is the way. And as we walk down that path, the, the way of Jesus. Here's the wonderful truth in today's message. There are people in front of us on that path. There are people behind us on that path. There are people alongside of us. We do not walk down that path alone, and we would be fools if we tried to. It's not the way he made it. It's not the way he designed us. This is the way it is for his church. This is the means by which Jesus is the means by which we are invited in to our community. And what's interesting is as you learn about what our community looks like, it's not just the means by which we're able to get in, it's also a description, Jesus, of how we ought to look and behave when we're here. Jesus is the means of our entrance into this community. Now, I wanna just close with a quote from Life Together where Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks specifically about of how, we, how our community is through and in Jesus Christ. He says this, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means, first, that a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. It means, second, that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. And it means, third, that in Jesus Christ, we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity. Folks. That's the means for our life together. If you're sitting on the sidelines and you're not a part of a community, if there's not a church that you say, those are my people, it doesn't have to be this church, but I will tell you, you need that. It's what God's called us to. And if we're feeling lonely, if we're feeling unloved and we're not cared for and we haven't entered into then ultimately, we're the ones bearing the responsibility, okay? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for just the reality that you have not saved us in isolation from each other, but you have saved us into a community, the people of God. And I pray that you would help us to, the reality is these things don't just come naturally to us. We are still sinners in need of your grace. And so Lord, I pray that as we do life together, that you would help us to embrace and recognize that these, this is your design, these are our birthmarks. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to pursuing them, just as you have called us to. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name.